Bible reading this morning is from Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 49. Now that same day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Together they were discussing everything that had taken place. And while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near and began to walk with them. But they were prevented from recognising him. Then he asked them, What is this dispute that you are having with each other as you are walking? And they stopped walking and looked discouraged. The one named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know what the things are that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked them. So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet powerful in action and speech before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we are hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. They came near the village where they were going, and he gave the impression that he was going further. But they urged him, stay with us because it's almost evening and now the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. It was as he reclined at the table with them that he took the bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognised him, but he disappeared from their sight. They said to each other, Weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? That very hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and those with them gathered together and said, The Lord has truly been raised and has appeared to Simon. Then they began to describe what had happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were saying these things, he himself stood in their midst. He said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and terrified and thought they were seeing a ghost. Why are you troubled? he asked them. And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see, because a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you can see I have. 
Having said this, he showed them his hands and feet. But while they were still amazed and in disbelief because of their joy, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He told them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He also said to them, This is what it is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead the third day. And repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And look, I am sending you what my father has promised. As for you, stay in the city until you are empowered from on high. This is the word of the Lord. Thank <coughs> Pardon me. Thanks, Jeanette. Let's pray. Lord, we pray now for your Holy Spirit to come mightily and powerfully into this place and also into the hearts and minds of those listening online that we might understand your word, that you might also open our eyes to see as you have here for the disciples. And we pray that you will uh, change us this morning as we listen, as we reflect, and as we think about uh, what you have to teach us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Now, we have been uh, quite some time now travelling through our Garden to Garden City series. I think we are roughly up to a message like 38 or something. Um, And so it has been a little bit of a journey. And as we saw last week, it's kind of all been building up to this point. You know, we've, we've been traveling through this story that starts in the Garden of Eden and really kicks off with the fall into sin. And there's this sin problem. God tells Adam and Eve, if you will eat from this tree that I command you not to eat of, you will surely die. And so they do eat from the fruit and ultimately they do die. Sin causes their death. And the whole of the Old Testament really is uh, the story of trying to sort out this sin problem. Now, God does that uh, first by um, calling Abraham and he says to him, I'm going to uh, make you into a great nation, I'm going to give you a land and you will be a blessing to all people. And that's the, the promise then that, that uh, God develops into the story of how he's going to deal with this sin problem. And so as the story goes, Israel ultimately becomes this great nation, this great people, and they are physically placed in the center of the ancient world, in the land of what was Canaan, but that little strip of land was literally the center of the ancient world, and from that place they were to radiate God's blessing to the world. Now, the way they did this is they were supposed to show the nations what it meant to live under uh, God's rule, what it meant to have a way to deal with sin. Uh, they, they had a way to, uh, to kind of cleanse themselves from sin. It, initially it was the tabernacle, but here when they become a nation, it, it moves into the temple and there's this whole sacrificial system that deals with that sin problem. 
If a person uh, committed sin, they could offer a sacrifice. Once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the whole nation would come and the priest would offer an atonement for the sins of the whole nation. And every year, um, uh, these sins were dealt with. And ultimately, all of these things are but foretastes in the big picture story of what was to happen, what, what was to come, that Jesus was on His way. The problem with the temple and the sacrificial system is that ultimately uh, it has to be done every year. Every year this Day of Atonement would come. Every time a sin was committed, you had to offer a sacrifice. Every time something went wrong, you had to atone. And so while the system kind of worked, it clearly wasn't perfect. It was really a foretaste of what was to come. And as we saw last week, it all ultimately pointed to Jesus' death on the cross. He was there, the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate sin offering for the sins of the people. And anyone who comes to believe in Him uh, gets His perfect life placed on them and gives Him our sinful life. And it is our sins that are ultimately poured out, God's wrath for our sins is poured out on Christ. And so that's what we looked at last week. Jesus fulfills this sacrificial requirement forever. And if you know the Gospels well, you'll know that at that moment, the curtain temple tears from top to bottom. God rips it up and says, no longer are you separate from me, Uh, the sin problem is dealt with. And so we saw how how the the death, the crucifixion, deals with our sin, and, and we looked at that last week. But the story obviously doesn't end there. Early Christians were more interested in preaching the resurrection than the crucifixion. When they went into all the world, the message they took was not primarily the message of Jesus' death on the cross. People got crucified all the time. That wasn't, you know, kind of unique for them. But for them, what was really necessary in bearing witness to their faith, what was more important than Jesus' death was His resurrection. Now, when we share the gospel, what, what's the main bits that we share? We share about how we are sinful, we share about how Jesus' death on the cross deals with that sin, uh, and that when we trust in Him, our sins are forgiven. We've taken the gospel message uh, and kind of looked at it through Western eyes. We are people that, that like problem solving. We have a problem, sin, there is a solution, Christ... And so how do you get it? By faith. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, but that's just not how the early church understood it. For the early church, they, they worried more about uh, the, the resurrection part. It was that that they had to bear witness then. And so we, had to, we have to ask ourselves then, all these years later, why is the resurrection so important? Why is the resurrection so important to us? What, uh, what does the fact of Jesus' resurrection do for us? How does it change us? Why is it important for us? And I'd like to suggest to you three different things, uh, three different reasons why the resurrection is important. The first is that the resurrection brings the Old Testament to a close. The resurrection brings the Old Testament to a close. So we've see, so so let's just think about this together. We see how these disciples are travelling along the road, and Jesus um, uh, then starts uh, telling them uh, about how this this brings uh, <laughs> how the Old Testament ultimately points to Him. 
So in the story, Jesus has gone to the cross. We've seen last week, we looked at his suffering. We saw how in the crucifixion, God's wrath is poured out on Christ and he bears it with this kind of nobility and that through his suffering, he brings us freedom. We looked at how Jesus died as our substitute. He stood in our place. Um, and in his suffering, he took the, the consequences that our sin deserved and he, he took it on himself and he gives us uh, his life. And then Jesus is resurrected. Now, in our current text, we find ourselves actually just after the resurrection. These two disciples are traveling on the road from Emmaus on the very same day that the woman, uh, the women went to the tomb and, and ran to Jesus' disciples and told him, we've seen the Lord, he has been uh, resurrected, he is alive. And we meet these two disciples who don't know that Jesus has been resurrected. And we meet these two disciples who don't understand, actually, that all of Scripture ultimately points to Christ. That this story from the garden to the garden city actually finds its fulfillment there on the cross. And I think it's important for us to wrestle with the fact, friends, that the very first teaching that Jesus gives anyone after his resurrection is to explain to people how the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in him. The first thing Jesus tells people after his resurrection is that the whole Old Testament was about him. And we find Jesus explaining to Cleopas and his uh, companion that um, everything that was prophesied in the Old Testament was about him. From starting with Moses, working through the prophets, including the writings, the Psalms, that is um, the whole Old Testament. It's, It's kind of a phrase they use to describe the whole Old Testament. The Moses, the prophets and the writings... The whole book was about him. Jesus explained to them how everything that they knew, everything that they'd grown up with, every lesson they learnt in the temple, every scroll they had read, ultimately points to himself. But now that the death and the resurrection has happened, the Old Testament has come to an end. It has fulfilled its function. The Old Testament period has come to a close. And I think that's important for us to wrestle with because most Christians don't understand, they don't see how the Old Testament points us to Jesus. They suffer from a Cleopas problem where uh, they know the stories, they understand the Old Testament stories, but they don't see how this fits in to the big picture story that God has been telling. You know, the classic example, and I use this all the time, is they read the story of David and Goliath. And we read the story of David and Goliath. And what we're supposed to see is that we could never be like David. Even though David was still flawed, we could never be like David. We need a better David. We need ultimately a Christ King. David was pointing to Jesus. We are supposed to understand that we are not the people of faith who come with our five stones of faith to destroy the giants of our unbelief. That's not who we are in the story. We're the Israelites hiding in the rocks because there is no one who is big enough and strong enough and brave enough to fight the greater Goliath, which is the sin in our hearts. We need a greater person to come and fight the sin battle for us. We need Jesus. That's what we're supposed to understand from the David and Goliath story. 
We're supposed to see in the Old Testament that God sent not just a Moses to deliver us out of the land of Egypt, the land of slavery, but a much greater Moses, Jesus himself, who leads us out of our slavery that we are enslaved to. Yes, Moses led the people out of the land of slavery, but that's supposed to show us that Jesus is leading people everywhere, God's people everywhere, all throughout the world, out of a land of much greater slavery our bondage to sin. And when Jerusalem is being rebuilt and the remnant of Israel come back from Babylon, we're supposed to see that ultimately there's actually only one true Israelite. There's only one real remnant, one person who hasn't abandoned God, and that is Christ himself. The remnant of Israel is really just Jesus himself. He is the fulfillment of the promise uh, to Abram that there will be a people and a land and a blessing to all nations. It finds its fulfillment in Christ. But that through this one remnant person, Jesus, God will rebuild the kingdom. He will build up Zion and he will build these eternal, um, this eternal kingdom and we as believers, will be inheritors of this future kingdom. And at every point in the Old Testament story, from garden to garden city, it was pointing to Christ. But now, Jesus has come. And the Old Testament finishes. And that part of the story is over. Now we talk about how stories have, uh, a good story has three parts. It's got a beginning, a middle and an end. Um, that doesn't seem too controversial to me. Uh, the beginning of the story is that sin came into the world. The middle is the way, how does this get resolved? What, how do we deal with it? The end is that Jesus puts an end to that story. Now the, the New Testament is kind of an epilogue, if you like, of now what? What happens next? And we'll be exploring that as we as we go forward. But the main middle bit of the story, how is the sin problem dealt with? That's finished. The Old Testament comes to a close. You see, friends, Jesus is God's incarnate Son. Yes, He came to live a perfect life and pay the ultimate penalty, to suffer in our place, to live again, but He does this to prove that Everything has been pointing to him. He is the key to unlocking the Old Testament. One commentator goes so far as to say that we cannot understand anything properly from Moses to Malachi, so from Genesis to Malachi, the whole Old Testament, unless we see its connection with the whole Gospel. And that is what Jesus spends the first few moments of his resurrected life doing. He explains to these two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus that now the Old Testament is complete. And you and I are invited to be not Cleopas, but the unnamed disciple, to walk along with Christ and to understand the same lesson. And so Jesus goes about showing how right from the very beginning of Scripture, right through the prophets, the Old Testament, it all points to him. I don't know about you, but when I was um, a younger Christian, when, you know, when you're young and you know everything, um, it was very trendy to say, I'm a New Testament believer. 
You know, since Jesus appeared in the New Testament, He's fulfilled the Old Testament, and therefore, you don't need to worry about the Old Testament. You can, you can get your, um, your red-letter Bible and just worry about Jesus' words, right? Uh, and that's, you know, that's what I thought. I was of the opinion that really the Old Testament is, is essentially irrelevant now. It has no bearing on us, and we may as well forget about it, really, because if I wanted to know how to live... I could just look at the New Testament and see Jesus, right? Look at His words and, and live like that. If I looked at the life of Christ, He would show me how to live. And perhaps you have thought along similar lines. Perhaps you think that if you want to know about Jesus, you just look at the New Testament. Just look at His words, uh, read the red letters, and you'll be fine. What Jesus is teaching us here is that if we want to understand who Jesus is, we need to look at the Old Testament. We have to understand how He fits in the story because it's actually all been about Him. He brings us right back to the Old Testament from Moses to Malachi and He shows us how all of it points to Him. And if we got rid of the Old Testament, we would do away with things that you find in the Old Testament that you never actually read in the New you would miss out on God's heart for the, for the widow, for the fatherless, for the weak. You would miss out on the prophecies and the laws that God puts in place to look after these other people that live around Israel so that they can be blessed by Him as well. And you would miss out on sort of two-thirds of the teaching of who Jesus ultimately is. It all points to Him, to Christ, our risen Lord, and what place He plays. And actually, without the resurrection, Jesus would have just been another Old Testament character. If Jesus did not rise again from the dead, we would still be stuck in the Old Testament times. We would still be waiting for someone to come and set us free. What do these disciples say? They said, we were hoping that he was going to be the one to finally come and redeem Israel. And without Jesus raising from the dead, that story would still be our story. Jesus would simply be another great figure, maybe, maybe even a better king than David, and, but just another prophet from the Old Testament. And yet he does rise again. And in doing so, he says that all of the Old Testament is true. It's all pointed to him. Everything in history has been leading up to this point. And in the resurrection, God himself says, here is my son, his sacrifice is sufficient. The work is done. It is finished. As we saw last week. And the new era, the New Testament time, has truly begun. Now, we have a problem in our language. Uh, old, in the word, the issue is testament. Uh, it's, it's really, there's a long history lesson of language, which I'm not going to go into. But in the Old Testament, it, it, it kind of means the old agreement with God. In the old agreement, the agreement was sacrificial system will sort out your sin. And now we're in the new agreement, the new covenant, the new testament. When Jesus comes back from the dead, when he's resurrected, that old agreement is finished. That law is complete. That contract is torn up and we now live under a new covenant, the covenant in His blood. 
The old way of things has passed away, the new has now come. And so the resurrection brings an end to the old way. And that's the first thing we need to understand. Jesus' resurrection is pretty important because it brings the end to the old era. Now, the second thing we need to understand is that the resurrection actually completes Jesus' ministry here on earth. Uh, Not only is the Old Testament finished, but also his work on earth is finished. Let's pause for a moment and consider what happens to these disciples as they walk along the road. Jesus asked them, what are you talking about? And with only the kind of humour that God can master, Cleopas says to him, are you the only one in Jerusalem who doesn't know what happened here? When actually Jesus is the only one who does know what has happened here. What a remarkable question to ask. Jesus was the one who understood what it meant to be betrayed by one of his closest friends. He was the one who experienced being illegally tried and found guilty, even though the judge knew that he was innocent. Only he was the one who understood what it feels like to have the full depths of God's wrath against sin poured out on him. He's the one who knows what it's like to be slain for the sins of others, to be a lamb led to the slaughter. He really is the one who knew what happened in those last few days. What I find fascinating is that the disciples don't recognize him. Why don't they recognize him? Well, we can only guess at that. But I do think we get a hint a little bit later that um, Jesus opens their eyes. Their eyes were opened and they saw him. And later again, there's another part where it talks about how uh, he was revealed to them and they understood. Uh, I think what is happening here is that this is referencing the fact that during the whole Old Testament era, um, after the fall of sin, Satan was kind of ruler over the earth, right? So under God, Satan was the ruler of the earth and the world was in darkness. They could not see. It's the same reason we looked at a few weeks ago why the disciples just didn't get it. Like they, their faith was so weak, they completely lost it all the time. And in the next, so I'm away next week, but the week after I'll be preaching about the Pentecost, coming of the Holy Spirit. And what we see there is that as the Holy Spirit is poured out on these people, Peter, who had just denied Jesus three times, preaches one sermon and 3,000 people come to faith, right? There's, there's this pouring out, the new kingdom has come. And I think what's happening here is that Jesus uh, is kind of breaking that into even the lives and eyes of these disciples. They suddenly see who he is. But right now, that's still veiled. So we don't really know, but I think that's what's going on. Why can't they recognize him? Probably because of that. But what happens is Cleopas gives this testimony of of Jesus. It's an incomplete story. He misses out on Jesus' resurrection. And that's a big problem, because without that, our faith means nothing. Yes, he gives an excellent account. Cleopas gives an excellent account of Jesus' life. He explained where he came from. 
Uh, he was Jesus of Nazareth, what he did, how he, you know, was a great prophet, how he was killed, he was tried and crucified, how he was handed over to the chief priests, he'd been captured, killed, how they had trusted in him, how they had wanted to believe that he was their redeemer, the redeemer of Israel, that he could be maybe the one that could rescue God's people out of slavery, but how he seems to have failed. But notice, friends, that... Uh, just look at the state that Cleopas and his friends were in. They are distraught. They are sad. And the truth here is, the principle we learn is that without the resurrection, the story of Jesus is no gospel at all. It is not good news. We actually need Jesus to have been resurrected for our faith to make sense. The resurrection is not a nice idea to have. It's not merely an optional extra the resurrection is critical to us making sense of Jesus and his work on the earth. The resurrection is crucial for us to understand what he actually did. And part of what Luke is doing here is he shows us that Jesus has indeed risen from the dead and that's important for us to understand because unless we get that, our faith is worthless. And so what happens is Jesus appears to his disciples uh, in, in this upper room or this, this room where they're all hiding. And they stare at him with joy and amazement. Partially, they first think he's a ghost and then he eats this piece of broiled fish. Incidentally, as an aside, if you've just gone through the crucifixion, that's not the thing that I want to be eating, a piece of broiled fish. Like, where's my big steak? But anyway... Um, that's what Jesus eats, a piece of broiled fish, and because they now know that he's not a ghost, but he's still got the holes in his hand and his feet in his side, they stare at him with joy and amazement. And eating this fish shows them that he really was back from the dead because ghosts can't eat. And this causes them to stare, perhaps in disbelieving joy, that he was back. But now all was good and well. But we are supposed to understand out of this story that no story of Jesus, no matter how historically accurate it is, doesn't give us any hope unless that includes the resurrection. Without Jesus coming back from the dead, we have no joy. We're stuck like Cleopas and his friends, distraught and sad. And we have no hope for a future. The Apostle Paul goes as far to say that if there is no resurrection, then we are to be pitied above all other people. Similarly, a, a more recent commentator, Michael Ramsey, says this, The gospel without the resurrection is, mere, is not merely a gospel without its final chapter. It's just no gospel at all. The resurrection is critical. Because without it, we would not know if Jesus' work was complete. His perfect life is complete, his death is sufficient, and he is truly alive again, and that's how we know that we are okay. Our sense of hope comes from the fact that Jesus 
came back to life, that God raised him from the dead. Because when God does that, he declares that he has fully accepted Jesus' work here on earth. His work was truly finished. The resurrection is the rubber stamp that gets stamped over Jesus' work and says, accepted. And so the resurrection brings his work on earth to completion. And so if you are without hope, if your life seems to be missing something, the encouragement for us here is to look at the resurrection because there is your hope. The Bible describes how Jesus is the first fruits of those who have gone to sleep, right? So if we trust in him, we are like the crop that follows those first fruits. No matter where we are in life, ultimately we too will be resurrected with him. We have life in Christ because of his resurrection. And that is where our hope lies. And there is nothing on this earth that can snatch that from us. You know, Sickness, what can that do? Well, it can kill us, but so what? Because we come back to life. We can go through intense emotional turmoil and that can kill, you know, our sense of joy to some extent, but so what? Because in the end, we will be resurrected in joy and live with God forever in the presence of Christ and around His throne. Nothing can steal that from us. Our friends can desert us and we can be left alone and lonely. But so what? Because all those people that abandoned you, they too will die one day, but you will be resurrected into an eternal family of God to take up residence in heaven forever with Christ. The resurrection is important for us, friends, if we don't hold to that. We are to be pitied above all other people. Christianity is a religion of life after death. So the resurrection gives us hope. Brings an end to the Old Testament. It rubber stamps Jesus' work on earth and therefore gives us hope. And then finally, it, it prepares the way for a fire to be put into our hearts. From verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Interesting phrase. He also said to them, this is what is written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. Since you are witnesses of these things and look, I am sending you uh, what my father has promised. As for you, stay in the city until you are empowered from on high. And so Luke ends his gospel story with this real sense of anticipation. Something was coming. The empowerment, the thing that the Father had promised, that was on its way. Uh, and so that's the last few words of Jesus' uh, Luke's gospel. Now next time we'll be looking, as I said, at what that means. But we're supposed to feel the weight of this. We're supposed to think, okay, well, what comes next? What comes next? I can't wait. And what comes next, friend, of course, is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. 
And we're supposed to very much see and understand that the resurrection is not the end for God's people. Yes, it's the climax of the story. It's kind of the end of the big picture story of dealing with sin. But now that the new era has come, now that the kingdom is coming, the epilogue is beginning. And we have a big part to play in that. In fact, you might say that's a new story altogether. But we're supposed to understand that this is not the end for God's people. Jesus doesn't just go back into heaven, ascends to the Father, and that's where the story finishes. His disciples are supposed to go back to Jerusalem and wait. Wait for the Holy Spirit to come. Why? So they can bear witness. The fact is that Jesus came back. He was resurrected and he goes to the, uh, to the Father in heaven so that the Holy Spirit can come and so that this new phase of, of the expansion of God's kingdom through the church can begin. But this is what gives our lives purpose and meaning. And we are going to explore this more fully next time. But really, Jesus does here give a task to his disciples. Matthew records it more fully uh, than Luke. He says, All authority in heaven and earth, this is Jesus speaking, has been given to me. Therefore go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey the commandments I have given you. And behold, I am with you until the very end of the age. Friends, this is our purpose. This is what it all leads up to. So yes, the, the death on the cross and the resurrection brings the Old Testament to a close, but then we are commissioned into this new era to come. Let you and I not diminish the command Jesus gives us here. It's called the Great Commission, not the Great Suggestion. And today, as we reflect on his resurrection, let's think about what that means for our lives. We'll explore that a little bit more fully in the weeks to come. But you and I have been commissioned into this bearing witness ministry. We are to tell our friends, our co-workers, our family of what Christ has done, of how he died, how he was resurrected and what that means for us. You and I have seen something that we need to share. You and I have experienced something in the life of Christ that we need to share. And so after his resurrection, Jesus promises his disciples that they will have this life of purpose. This is the same life of purpose that's open to us. To bear witness wherever we go, in all the nations, wherever we might find ourselves, and to disciple people around us. That's what this church has committed itself to and I invite you to commit your life to that too. So the question is, (laughs) will you answer that call, I guess? Will you answer that call to, I guess, stand up and be counted? In light of the resurrection of Christ, in light of the new life and the hope, eternal hope you have, Is that good news you can share with someone? Yesterday was the grand final. And the Mighty Cats destroyed the Sydney Swans, didn't they? 
Maybe I'm talking to the wrong crowd here. But yes, they did. Uh, I'm not a cat supporter, but Sarah is. And um, apparently so is Ruben, but that I did not know. It was really funny. He wanted to watch the grand final, and so he's sitting there on the floor and doesn't understand the rules of football, but he just keeps going, cats, cats, and yelling and screaming at the TV. It was quite amusing. <laughs> um, but what happens when your grand final team wins? The next morning, that day, you decorate your post box and the fence in your front yard with your team colours, right? If you drive through the city, you see black and white. Is it blue? Black? Blue and... Yes, <laughs> clearly the wrong person. Um, blue and white streamers and, and stuff. Why? Because it is good news to share with the world. Why is it that we are far more comfortable sharing that news than the greatest news the world could ever receive? Huh? So I invite you to consider that question. In what ways are you bearing witness to Christ? Why not start today? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gift of the resurrection. We thank you that we can see that in the resurrection, the whole Old Testament draws to a close, and while some of those um, things still apply to us, they are nevertheless uh, finding their fulfillment in Christ Jesus. And so we praise you and thank you for that. But now, Lord, you have commissioned us into a new life that starts in the New Testament, the new story that begins now that you have been resurrected. We pray, Lord, through your Holy Spirit to so empower our hearts and minds, to give us this fire, prepare our hearts with fire through your Holy Spirit, to share the good news, not just that our footy team won on the weekend, but that our King won against the powers of darkness, and that we therefore have an eternal life to look forward to. Lord, we pray that you will plant this seed deep in us and give us a real love for the people around us, that we would share this, that we would love them, I guess, enough to share this news with them as well. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.